Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's guest speaker is Pastor Brian Jones, and the sermon is titled, What Makes God Happiest? For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. In a moment, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of Luke chapter 15. And I bring you greetings from Calvary Bible Church in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Um, we are so thankful that your church exists because um, that's why we joined the Five Stone Networks was to start local churches and uh, yours is one of several that we've had the privilege of being part of starting over the years and we're always grateful to hear what the Lord is doing in your church. But it's always good, especially for me, to come and see what the Lord is doing firsthand and so I was grateful when Pastor Kerry invited me to come speak last year and Thankful that I did at least well enough that a second visit was uh, acceptable at least. And uh, so we're just so thankful to um, have you in our network. It's also good because I never would have met Carrie, I don't think any other way. And yet um, he and the other pastors in our network have become friends and uh, just grateful to know him and to uh, be able to share um, you know, some of the things that, that we pastors go through in ministry together. Our text for this morning is Luke chapter 15, and please follow along as I read verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and diligently, uh, seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is God's word. Aesop's fables are a collection of short stories that tradition says were written by a Greek slave around 500 years before Christ. And these stories 
tell um, and illustrate each one a point about living that is helpful to know. And uh, the story itself drives home the point in a way that's very memorable and very helpful for a person's life. And one of Aesop's fables described a man and his son who were going to the marketplace with their donkey. And at first, all three of them were walking along the road together until they encountered other travelers on the road who commented to each other, but in their hearing, how absurd is it that that man is making his young son walk when he could be riding the donkey? And so the man listened to the wisdom of this traveler and put his son on the donkey and they continued walking together, the man on foot, the donkey on foot, and the son on the donkey until they encountered more travelers who said, why is it that poor old man having to walk and his son who is young and youthful and and healthy gets to ride on the donkey? The man should be riding the donkey as well. And so, because of the statement that these fellow travelers made, a man mounted the donkey himself and the two of them rode the donkey together as they continued on their way to the marketplace. Finally, they encountered some more travelers who said, how ridiculous is it that that poor donkey has to carry a grown, healthy man and a healthy boy? Why do they impose such a burden on this, on this uh, poor animal when it's going to have to carry whatever they bring home from the market on their way back? And so the man and the boy dismounted from the donkey. They found a long stick, and they actually bound the donkey's um, hooves together and carried it between them on the stick. And as they were crossing a bridge, another set of travelers came along and laughed at how absurd it was to see two men carrying a healthy donkey on a stick bound between them. And as they were laughing at these, this father and this son, the donkey, of course, didn't like it either and was squirming and trying to get free. And finally, the donkey did get free and it fell off the bridge into the water where it drowned. And so because of their fear of the opinions of other people, because of their desire to please other people that they didn't even know, they not only were laughed at, but they lost their donkey in the process. This story, of course, illustrates something that you and I have learned in our own lives, and that is that it is impossible to act in a way that will please everyone. It is impossible to please everyone And you can never, and I can never, act in a way that will please everyone. I have a saying in my home. I have three children, a 15-year-old, an almost 13-year-old, and an almost 10-year-old. And they're great kids. But they're different from each other. And so if I ask them something like, where should we go out for dinner tonight? Or what movie should we rent together to watch? Or whatever. I, I have the saying that if you ask three Jones kids what we should do, you'll get at least two strongly held opinions, okay? Because you just can't please everyone. This is a fact of life and one that you and I have experienced over and over again. It's impossible to act in a way that will please everyone. And Jesus encountered this as well. In our passage for this morning, in verse 1, the passage opens by saying, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. For those of us who do a lot of public speaking, Pastor Kerry and me, 
The more people who listen, the better. This is what we want. One of the metrics of success is how many people are coming to hear what you have to say. It's one of the things that we pastors sometimes say when we get together. How many are coming these days? You know, it's, it's, it's not a godly thing to talk about, but, it, but it's a natural one to talk about. It's one of the metrics of success that we use toward one another. And so the fact that Jesus' crowds are growing and swelling with people should be a good thing. And the disciples and those who care about the ministry of Jesus should be glad that his congregation is growing. But not everyone was, because verse 2 tells us, And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The people who were the religious elite in Jesus' world, the ones that most people who had religious ideas and religious aspirations wanted to please, those people weren't so happy about the crowds that were coming to Jesus. Not only was there a jealousy about the fact that Jesus was getting attention that they were not, but they judged the crowd that Jesus was listening to. And they said, what good, is, what good is it to have a large crowd if they're filled with these kinds of people? If they're filled with these people who are, in essence, outcasts, religiously in our world. And so here's Jesus, unable to please everyone. By one metric in verse 1, he's having success. People are coming to hear him. By another metric, though, the religious elite are saying, how come he's receiving these people? How come he doesn't send them away? And so he receives success in one metric in verse 1 and criticism in another verse. And so Jesus himself was unable to act in a way that could please everyone. And so how did Jesus respond to this? He responded with the two parables that we read just a moment ago. You know them as the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And Jesus told these two parables to explain his actions. It is impossible to act in a way that will please everyone, so Jesus said, I'm going to act in a way that will please God, not anyone else. Jesus acted the way he did because it was pleasing to God. He acted to please God, not anyone else. And he told these two stories to illustrate what God celebrates. He wanted people to understand why he acted the way that he did. And it was because of God. And as we read in verses 3 through 7, the parable of the lost sheep, we read these words, verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now Jesus is borrowing from something that was common in his culture. Shepherding was a very common profession. Jewish people, of course, sacrificed sheep on a regular basis, so there was an ongoing market for sheep. They also ate uh, lamb meat, and so um, this is a decent business to be in. Shepherding was not a, uh, a, a profession that was held in high esteem in Jesus' world, but it was one that was considered an honorable profession. And so people could relate to the story about a shepherd, especially where Jesus spent most of his time in the northern part of Israel called Galilee. Lots of shepherds in Galilee. And so Jesus tells a story that would, some of them could immediately relate to because they were, they were shepherds, and all of them could, could relate to in one way or another because they knew shepherds and saw them doing their work. 
And so he says in uh, verse three or verse four, what man of you having a hundred sheep? Now having a hundred sheep is a pretty average size flock. It's not a huge flock. There were other shepherds who had 200 sheep or more. And it wasn't a small flock either. There were some shepherds who had 50 or 60 or 70 sheep. And so 100 sheep is not a huge flock, but it's not a small flock either. It's really quite average. And Jesus says, imagine if you are a shepherd or if you were a shepherd and you had these 100 sheep. And at the end of the day, as you were uh, getting everyone uh, to go down for the night and you were just kind of getting ready to rest, and you went through and counted all of your sheep. You only counted to 99. And because you wanted to be sure that your counting was correct, you counted a second time, and once again, you could only get to the number 99. Immediately, you would start to think, what happened to that hundredth sheep? How did I lose her? Did a wolf come along and take her when I wasn't looking? Did she wander away from the herd and I just wasn't paying attention? Or maybe I was tending to some other sheep that was in a, you know, that was caught in some some bushes or something. How did I lose the sheep? What has become of her? How would you respond in this situation, Jesus says? Well, what he says is what you're not going to do is say, well, I still got 99, so, you know, easy come, easy go. Hopefully they will reproduce and I'll have more, but you know, 100 sheep is not a bad number to have, or 99 sheep is not a bad number to have. Jesus said that's not the way you're going to respond if you lose a sheep. Sheep are valuable. Each one of them produces wool. Each one of them can be sold in the marketplace. This is money that's lost. And this is your profession. You had one job, which was to take care of the sheep, and you lost one of them. All right? And so there are all kinds of reasons why no one would stand still and take having only 99 sheep when you started out with 100. And so Jesus says, of course, what you're going to do is this. You're going to leave the 99 in the open country. And that isn't like leaving them out there as easy pickings for the wolves and whatnot. There are other shepherds who would look after your sheep for you. But he says, you're going to not be happy that you still have 99. You're going to leave them and you're going to go looking for the sheep that is lost. And that's what he says in the, back, the last part of verse 4, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. That means he will keep looking even in the dark. He will look over every cliff. He will look into the bushes. He will look in the caves. He will keep going until he either finds the dead carcass of that sheep and knows that his life or her life is lost, or he's going to find that sheep that just wandered off and is still healthy. Jesus said he's going to keep going until he finds it. And then after he finds it, and he finds it alive and whole, he finds it um, unhurt and still um, in a healthy condition, what does he do then? Verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And there's a note of triumphalism here, where he doesn't scold the sheep for wandering off. Sheep are dumb, and they don't speak English or Aramaic the language that Jesus spoke. And so um, berating the sheep isn't going to help at all. Sheep wander. This is what they do. And so the shepherd doesn't scold the sheep. He doesn't beat the sheep. He doesn't get angry at the sheep. He's happy that he's recovered the sheep. So happy that he doesn't take that crook and you know, lead it this way. He actually picks it up and puts it, drapes it over his shoulders, the Bible says. And, and he does so rejoicing, the last word of verse 5. But that's not all. He's not just internally happy 
and relieved even to have recovered this lost sheep. Verse 6 says he wants to spread his happiness. It says, and when he comes home, and so when it's time for the sheep's sheep to come back home to the pen, they're done grazing, and everyone is uh, in good shape, and they're ready to be penned up. He brings them all home, and verse 6 goes on and says, and uh, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Jesus says this shepherd not only is happy to have recovered the sheep, relieved that the sheep is okay, but he wants to spread that joy to others. He calls to other friends and other shepherds and says, let's have a little party. And let me share with you the joy that I have that this one lost sheep has been recovered. And so Jesus tells this story that everyone could relate to and no one would disagree with the premise or the conclusion of what Jesus says. Of course, people are going to rejoice in this situation. Who wouldn't? Well, then Jesus delivers the punchline in verse 7 when he says this, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven. And let's stop there. You understand that when the Bible, especially in the New Testament, when it talks about heaven, that it's usually using a way of speaking that refers to God without directly saying his name. You understand that because of the Ten Commandments, where God commanded his people, do not take the name of the Lord in vain, that God's people were careful about how they used the name of God. And so they would resort to these kinds of euphemisms to refer to God without actually saying his name. And one of the ways they would do this is to refer to heaven. When Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, that's what he was talking about, the kingdom that belongs to God. And so too in this verse, when he says, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. He's not talking about some generalized joy in heaven among the angels. He's talking about God. And what he's telling us is, God is extremely happy when sinners turn from pursuing their sin and in repentance change their minds and come to God for forgiveness and for fellowship. Jesus says in verse 7, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And here Jesus is not blessing the Pharisees and the scribes and saying, you guys are, are great and God loves you so much. He's so happy with you. Let's go and get the other one. No, he's just, he's sort of um, conceding their worldview. They thought they were self-satisfied in their own righteousness. They thought God was happy with them. And this is why they despised other people, because they were so attentive to their own self-righteousness. They looked down on people who didn't follow the kind of self-righteousness that they pursued. And Jesus says, you are self-satisfied and smug in your relationship with God. But let me tell you that God is happier when one of these people that you call sinners, when one of these tax collectors that you hate and that you don't want to live near or welcome into your synagogue. God is happier when one of them repents than he is over all of the self-righteous people that crowd your synagogue Sunday after Sunday. Jesus says God rejoices more. He has more joy in his presence and in his heart over one of these prostitutes or one of these other unrighteous people that you look down upon when one of them turns from their sins and comes to God for forgiveness and to renew fellowship. God is happier about that than he is over all the psalms you sing on Saturday when you gather in your synagogue. 
or over all the alms that you give to the poor or tithes that you give to the Lord's work, that this pleases God more than anything else. And this is why Jesus says, I do what I do. Why did Jesus spend time with these people who were despised in their day because of their sins? It's because he knew something about God that the rest of us don't. He knew how much it pleases God when one sinner is recovered. And so Jesus told this story of the lost sheep to illustrate what God celebrates. He celebrates like a shepherd who recovers a lost sheep. The second story illustrates the same point. It tells it from a different perspective and gives us a little bit different uh, information about it. But basically, it's telling us the same story. It's illustrating the same point. It's emphasizing how much it matters to God when lost people are recovered. And so verses 8 through 10 tell us that God celebrates like a woman who recovers a valuable coin that she lost. Look with me at verse 8. The scripture says, Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Now we need to step back into the first century world and think about what life was like in those days. In those days, life was pretty hard. Most people lived on the very edge of poverty. They were able to make enough food to feed themselves and maybe sell a little bit to others. But they had difficult lives, lives that required them to work diligently day after day after day, and everyone had a role in the family. The men would go out into the fields if they were farmers and they would work hard from sunup to sundown. Or if they were shepherds, they'd be out in the field, sometimes all day and sometimes even in the night. Because this is a, an arid culture, it's hard to find uh, grass to graze in. Of course, the women in these situations had to do all of the things that their families needed. They had to cook meals from scratch ingredients. That means when they got up in the morning, they had to go out to the well and get water and carry it back. And they had to make bread from scratch, so they had to build their own fire and put it together, all the ingredients that were required to make bread for the family. People in these days worked hard all day long just to survive. And here's a woman, Jesus says, who has 10 coins, 10 silver coins. And I don't know if you've heard this story. It's a beautiful story uh, that uh, these 10 coins represent some kind of headdress that the woman wore. And they each, each, uh, you know, each part of this headdress had a coin that dangled down and she would wear it and Sometimes the story is told that this, her husband gave this to her on their wedding day. It's a beautiful story, but as far as I can tell, it's not true. All right? It's one of, those, one of those legends that has grown up around parables like this one that you may have heard over time, maybe in Sunday school, and it sounds great, but it probably isn't true. There's no evidence that this is actually what happened. So what we're talking about here is someone who um, was able to work a little bit harder and sell a little bit of bread and, 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 and able to create a little bit of money, a little stash of money just for rainy days. Um, these silver coins are what a, an average worker would earn in one day. Okay, And so we're talking about this woman with very diligent hard work has been able to save a little bit of money, 10 days worth just in case there was an emergency or just in case there was a difficulty. And maybe she kept it in a jar in her kitchen in a special place. 
And maybe when she had a little bit of money to add to it, she would take out the money that was there and count how many coins that she had. Well, for whatever reason, on this very day, she was taking out those coins and counting them, and instead of having the ten that she thought she had, she only had nine. Now again, remember these coins, each one represents one day's worth of wages. Now if you lost one day's worth of wages, it wouldn't do you in, it wouldn't send you into bankruptcy, I hope. I hope none of us lives that close to the margin. But you'd feel it. It wouldn't matter to you. This is not something that's a, that's a trivial amount of money, like pennies falling out of your pocket. A day's wage is something you don't want to lose. And this woman has carefully saved this and set it aside through her diligent efforts. And even though she still has water to get and still has bread to make and still has fish to fry and still has clothing to mend and still has all kinds of duties that were required of her just to survive in this culture. She didn't say, well, at least I still have the nine coins. We're good. No. Instead, she stopped what she was doing, Jesus says. She put aside the getting water and making bread and all of the things that would be required for her family. And the Bible says she lights a lamp. Now, these houses, most of them were just one-room structures, very simple structures with one room in them. And many of them had dirt floors, and a lot of them had no windows whatsoever. And so finding this lost coin in a very dark room like this was not an easy task. And so she had to put aside what she was doing. She had to get out a lamp and light it, and she had to look carefully in every corner of the room under every piece of the meager furniture that she had. And the Bible says she even sweeps out the house. So here she is combing through the dirt, looking for this lost coin in this darkened room. And Jesus says, who wouldn't do this? If you, if you lost something, you would set aside your life. And you would go looking for it. And, and look at the end of verse 8. It says, and she seeks diligently until she finds it. This is how much it matters to her. That even if her, her husband is unhappy that the bread isn't made, or even if her children are unhappy that their, coat, their favorite coat still needs a button sewn on it, that doesn't matter for now. What matters is finding the lost coin. And once she's found that... Then she can go on to other things. But first, notice what happens, verse 9. And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. She throws a little party for her other housewife friends. She says, Hey, let's get together and let's rewarm yesterday's bread. Or I don't know how housewives in this culture would celebrate something like this, but maybe they, um, they got out a little bit of the wine that they had stored for a special occasion and had a quick drink together. Or maybe uh, she, again, uh, you know, baked something special for the occasion. Somehow or other, she got her friends together and said, let's enjoy this thing because I'm so happy that I found this coin that I lost. And then Jesus brings home the point in verse 10 when he says this, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus told these stories to illustrate how God feels. And what makes God happy, what, what God celebrates. He celebrates like a shepherd recovering a lost sheep and like a woman who recovers a valuable coin that she lost. And Jesus told all of these stories, both of them and the one that follows that we're not going to look at, to tell the Pharisees and to tell us what makes God the happiest, what turns God on emotionally, unlike anything else. 
And the answer to that is the recovery of one of his lost sheep or the, the reinstatement of this value that is missing. And so Jesus spent time seeking lost people because God celebrates when they are found. The Pharisees might not like it. And they might look down at the type of person who was coming to hear Jesus. But Jesus says, I don't care what the Pharisees think. And I'm happy to have these people come and listen to me and and hear my word. Because what matters is what God celebrates, not what pleases the people around us. And so in uh, verses 1 and 2 then, let's look back at what we um, learn about this, the the setup to this. In verse 1 it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the reason that these people were coming to hear Jesus is that Jesus offered life and hope and acceptance to these people who were despised in their day. We know from other passages that Jesus was talking to people who had sold out to the Roman government to become tax collectors. And without going too much into detail about how tax collectors operated in their day, let me just tell you, they were despised by other Jewish people. And so these people, once they decided to sell out to the Roman government and become tax collectors, nobody wanted to live next door to them. And if you lived next door to them, you did not want to talk with them over the back fence. You did not want them coming into your synagogue and acting like they were normal, righteous people who were upstanding citizens in the culture. Selling out to the Roman government meant you would have a better income than the average person, but it also meant that you'd be socially isolated by everyone else. Some of these people, too, were immoral people or prostitutes. They were women who had broken up marriages or sold themselves because they were poor and were trying to stay alive and didn't know how else to make a living. And because they violated God's moral law, they, too, were pushed to the margins. They, too, were not welcomed in the synagogue or in polite society. They, too, were publicly even scorned by other people who felt righteous about the way that they live by putting down other people. Jesus then comes along and says, repent, change your mind because the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus makes no distinctions about the type of person who needs to repent. And so this was a life-giving message to these people. This was a way of them saying, I thought I was outcast from the presence of God and now here God is welcoming me back calling me back, saying you'll find forgiveness and you'll find acceptance if you change your mind about sin and come to Jesus. And so Jesus' message brought these people out because he offered them something that they had no other way of finding. If they had repented and tried to go back to the synagogue, it was too late. The people there wanted nothing to do with them. But Jesus said, I have life, I have hope, I have acceptance, I have God's love for you. If you change your mind and come to me. Of course they were flocking to him because he offered them a hope that they did not have anywhere else. The problem was those who were accepted in Jesus' world as religious leaders, they did not like this one bit. They discredited Jesus, in fact, for spending time with the despised. Look at verse 2 again. It says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, the Pharisees go one further here. Because the truth of the matter is you can't really say no to someone. If you're out in the air preaching and people come and listen to you, how are you going to say, no, you're not welcome here? I mean, nobody's going to do that, right? And so the Pharisees are unhappy that these sinful people are coming to hear Jesus. 
But Jesus was going a lot further than letting them, them listen to his messages. Jesus, after his messages were over, would go to their homes. And he would sit down at a table with them. And in their culture, this was a key way of indicating friendship and acceptance. Jesus would go to the homes of these people. He would indicate his friendship and acceptance of these people. That's what they were upset about most. And that's why they say at the end of verse 2, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus tells these stories to explain why he does what he does. He doesn't do it to gain credibility with sinner, sinful people so that they'll like him. And he doesn't do it to get acceptance from the self-righteous people in his world. Jesus knows that you can't please everyone. And so he says, I'm going to live my life to please God. And what pleases God more than anything else is the recovery of those who are lost. And so when we ask the question, what makes God happiest? The answer is when his lost sheep are found. When those valuable ones that he created in his image, but who strayed away in sin, turn in repentance and are recovered. This makes God happier than anything else on earth. That's why Jesus told these stories. Now, it's true that the Bible tells us there are many things that please God. Jesus talked about how God was pleased with the widow who put in the last of the money that she had into the offering because it was an act of faith, and this was pleasing to God. And the Bible says that God is pleased with us when we enter into our closet and we pray to our Father who is in heaven and says he'll reward us for this. There is no passage in Scripture that I can think of or that I'm aware of or that I studied in preparation for this message that describes the kind of joy that God receives from the acts of people like us in this way. There's never a passage that says God is so happy that he throws a party for the angels when people give to his work or when people go into their closet and pray or when people preach and teach the Scriptures to people who are already part of the community of God. There is no passage that expresses God's pleasure for those acts the same way God's pleasure is expressed in this passage over people who are lost and are recovered. And so what Jesus is telling us here is that nothing we do pleases God more than reaching people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus spent time the way that he did. And the message for us then, who have come to find acceptance in Jesus Christ, the message for us, who, uh, those of us who have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior and have found forgiveness in him, is, is to follow the example of Jesus. This is why we call ourselves Christians. This is why we call ourselves followers of Christ. We do what Jesus did. And Jesus said, this is the most important thing I do because it makes God happier than anything else. And so here's the main point for us this morning. Here's the big idea for this message. And it is that finding lost people pleases God so much that you and I should spend more time doing it. Finding lost people pleases God so much that you and I should spend more time doing it. And I want to speak to you this morning, if you're here and you're lost, you've never come to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're wondering, can I be accepted by God? The answer is yes, and in a far greater way than you can possibly imagine. God does not look at you with his back turned and his arms crossed and says, well, impress me that you've really changed this time. 
Show me that you really mean it when you ask me for forgiveness. This is not God's attitude toward the lost at all. Instead, the Bible says God is like a shepherd. He's looking for lost sheep. He's like a woman who sets aside all her household chores and sweeps the house looking for that lost coin because it is so valuable to him. And if we were to go to the next passage, the Bible says God is like a loving father who with open arms is ready to receive his rebellious son home even though his son wasted all his money and lived a sinful life. And so if you're lost this morning, if you've come here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me tell you, nothing is going to make God happier today than your salvation. That if by his grace you turn from living a life of sin and selfishness and come to receive the forgiveness of sins in Jesus, God is going to be so happy about that, he's going to party like you can't believe. And so let me welcome you. If you're not a Christian, let me urge you to receive the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. He gave his life to save you like a lost sheep. And you can be welcome in the presence of God if you trust him by faith. So if you're lost, God will celebrate your repentance and your recovery. That's one of the lessons of this passage. If you've been found by God, then the Bible says once we're in the family of God, we become part of the search party. This is what Jesus did, and so this is what we should do as well. And of course, we see this um, in more direct ways throughout the scriptures. We see that God commands all of us disciples to make more disciples. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the last words of Jesus on earth were, all power, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so Jesus left behind. He commands all of us disciples to make more disciples. And the Bible says that God celebrates when we go looking for those who are lost. Not only does God celebrate the recovery of his lost creation when someone becomes a Christian, but God celebrates when we merely go with the message. Look at this passage from Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 15, where the scripture says, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then the Apostle Paul says this, under divine inspiration, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching to them? And then he says this, quoting from the Old Testament, and how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as it is written, here's the quotation from the Old Testament, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful to whom? Beautiful to God. And yes, it's true, and, and if, you've, um, if you remember the person who brought you to Christ, you think well of that person, I'm sure, and you're thankful that God sent them into your life. But let me just tell you that, as you know, when we go out into this world and give the gospel, more often than not, people don't respond to the message. What do we do then? Is God all about results? No, the Bible says God celebrates even our attempts to reach his lost people because he loves re, uh, saving lost people so much. And so he celebrates when we go looking for those who are lost. And the Bible tells, tells us this too, that God rewards us with joy in eternity when we find those who are lost. Listen to this passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The scripture says, And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. And so Paul's saying, I'm thankful because you were saved when I came to you with the gospel. But then he goes on and says this, 
the word of God which is in, in, indeed at, at work in you who believe. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, he says, you are our glory and joy. The Bible says not only does God throw a party, not only does God rejoice more than any other time in his life when lost people are saved, but he says when we are part of the search party that recovers his lost sheep, he gives us that joy as well. And if you've ever been part of reaching someone for Christ, you'll know that it changes your relationship with that person forever. That seeing someone turn from their sin and, and find acceptance in Jesus Christ and forgiveness in him and growing in their faith creates a joy in the heart of a Christian like nothing else. And so if that's true, and yes, it's because it is true, so you and I should spend more time searching for the lost. This means we should look for opportunities to speak to others about Christ. In, this, in verse 1, the crowds came to Jesus. And in the time to time in your life, you're going to encounter someone who's ready to be saved. They're, they're looking for Jesus, and you're going to cross paths with them. And God's going to open a door for you to speak for Christ. Will you be ready? Will it matter to you that this is what God really wants? Will you look for those opportunities, and when God presents them to you, will you take them? But also we should look for opportunities to spend time with unbelievers. See, some, part of the work of evangelism is not just waiting for the door to open to us. It's, out, it's, it's like the shepherd who left the 99 to go out looking. Part of the work of evangelism is we need to be out there with unbelievers, spending time with them and getting to know them and looking for opportunities to invest in their lives so that we can talk to them about Christ. And so in your life, you need to think about where you spend your time. All of us spend a number of hours every week working. We spend a number of hours every week sleeping. We spend time with our families. And we spend time doing the daily tasks of survival, like preparing and eating meals and paying bills and all those things. All of these things need to be done. They're part of life, and they're important. It's what we do with the other time, the unstructured time in our life, that determines a lot about our walk with God. Do we spend that unstructured time in our life watching television for hours and hours on end? Or dabbling in politics? Or following our favorite sports team or teams? And nothing wrong with any of these, well, except maybe the politics thing, but there's nothing wrong with any of these things, morally speaking. What's wrong is when they consume every part of our life so that there's no time left to invite an unsaved neighbor over for dinner or to go out to lunch with a colleague or a coworker who doesn't know Jesus. And if maybe there's maybe you can combine some of your pursuits in life and create opportunities that way. If you enjoy playing softball instead of playing in a church softball league, maybe find a secular one where you can make some friends. And ask God to give you opportunities to spread the gospel. I don't know where this looks like, what this looks like in your life. What I know is, since we, you and I should spend more time looking for lost people because this is what's pleasing to God, that means we should look for opportunities to spend time with unbelievers. We should also pray for those who are searching for the lost. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, the scripture says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. This passage describes um, a command to pray for those who are out seeking 
for lost sheep. That means praying for other churches in our Five Stone Network that are um, trying to reach people in different parts of the world. It means praying for missionaries that you know of who are out in foreign fields trying to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is all part of the point of evangelism. And finally, I would say this. Give your life to look for lost people in other parts of the world. Maybe God would want one of you to leave behind the life that you have, the ambitions that you have, and move to a foreign nation to spread the gospel message. There's a woman from my church who deeply cares about Muslims. And when she was in our church, she actually moved to an area, there's an area in the Detroit area called Dearborn where lots of Muslim people live. She actually bought a home there to live among them. And she taught in a school that was filled with predominantly Muslim people. And she shared the gospel with the women because of their culture. That was the only acceptable people for her to talk to were women and children. So she faithfully shared the gospel with them. But when the opportunity came for her to move across the world, because she had a skill that people wanted over there, and she had the opportunity to move to a predominantly Muslim culture, she did it. Because she wants to be part of God's people who are seeking the lost until they are found. And maybe there's someone in here, maybe you're a young person thinking about what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And God's word is speaking to you saying, give yourself to the ministry or give yourself to missions. That's one way to apply the truth of this message. Or maybe some of you are adults and you're working in a field, but you work for a company that has branches or or offices or places overseas where you could also work. Maybe God would want you to leave the 99 and go seeking his lost sheep. Finding lost people pleases God. This is what Jesus is telling us. And it pleases God so much that you and I should spend more time doing it. So I urge you to reconsider your life, your priorities, where your time goes, and look for ways to spend more time seeking God's lost sheep. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that when we were lost in our own sins and far away from you, our Lord and Savior, you came out in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, and found disciples and gave your life to die for us as a substitution so that we could be found. And we thank you, Lord, that you passed on to each of your disciples down through the ages, including us, the opportunity to share the joy of God by reaching lost people for Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to think about our lives and our priorities and to consider, Lord, what we can do to spend more time seeking the lost in our own lives. We thank you, Lord, for those who brought the gospel to us, and we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be faithful in taking it to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.